0: This is Schoolhouse, Equity and Education. Welcome everyone to Schoolhouse. I am Allison Brown and I am your host. Today we're talking about the legacy of slavery and its current manifestations. I am delighted to welcome my dear friend, Dr. Natalie Hopkinson, who is an assistant professor at the Howard University School of Communications. Natalie is also a fellow at the Interactivity Foundation, which is an organization committed to supporting sustained dialogue as the critical cornerstone of the democratic process. We'll talk about that. Natalie is a journalist and author. Her books are Deconstructing Tyrone, A New Look at Black Masculinity in the Hip Hop Generation, also Go Go Live, The Life and Death of a Chocolate City, and the soon-to-be-released A Mouth is Always Muzzled, Art in Action, Culture in Defiance. Hi, Natalie. Welcome to Schoolhouse. (laughs) Hello. I'm so happy to be here. Well, you know, we are both very proud graduates of Howard University. (laughs) And you are, you've come full circle. You're back at Howard University. I have. And you're in the School of Communication. Yes. So you're steeped in the narrative conversations, perspective, mindset. How is that?
1: It's wonderful. I mean, almost 20 years since leaving back on campus and teaching in the PhD program and also teaching an undergraduate courses mm-hmm. semester and so I felt like after the election I just really felt like I dropped it in the matrix you know and sort of looking at how you know we're studying mass communication mm-hmm. and studying communication theory and propaganda and all the research that came out of how media systems have, been used to support totalitarian movements, mm-hmm. you know, with the rise of Hitler and Germany, the most prominent example. And it all felt really abstract and ivory towery. Mm-hmm. And Which,
0: then it got real. Power,
1: mean- well, just I mean, in general, being in the academy, you think about it being divorced from reality, and you're sort of this idea that you're in the ivory tower, but not so much. Yeah,
0: and then it played. It out.
1: felt very real. It got very, very real yeah. on the election. Yeah, you know, so it felt like. All of the things that we talked about with undergrads, we talked about the Black Lives Matter movement and the civil rights movement, looking Mm -hmm. at the role of media in those. We looked at how media systems have evolved and they taught me a lot about social media. Mm -hmm. And so
0: the students students did, Mm -hmm.
1: yes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all had lots of great laughs and conversations about Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then suddenly it it really was like a huge wake up call. Mm -hmm. So the power of the media. media. And, you know, as I alluded to in my theory class, again, you look at some of the early communications theorists, they were really trying to understand how how in the world did Hitler gain power? Mm -hmm. And what role did media play in that? Mm -hmm. And a lot of those early theories have been discredited. Mm -hmm. You know, they call them mass society theories where they say, oh, you know, media really doesn't have that direct effect. And it really isn't as impactful as people fear that it is and people have agency. Media is not like an injection thing where you just sort of take in, but you know, it's really forcing me to really rethink a lot of those
0: things. So are those theories actually now being proven true or were they being debunked because there wasn't the kind of proliferation of media and messaging that we see now?
1: Think about the media landscape was much different back then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was much simpler and less complex. But a lot of the things that you hear about internet and social media now, people were saying the same thing about radio. Actually, I was reading about this to prepare (laughs) for today. People wrote think pieces about how will radio replace teachers? (laughs) <laughs> well, people just sit there listening to
0: lectures and they have no need to go into the classroom? Which is the literal conversation right now about online education. That's literally the conversation.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, I can pull it out. Yeah. Like I was looking at that, just you know, having a good laugh about that. Yeah. But there's always mass panic around media. Mm. But I think in this case, I mean, we, well, I'll just say there's a lot for us to study
0: yeah. and a lot for us to figure out. Well, so speaking of mass panic... Deconstructing Tyrone was your first book with Natalie Moore. Yes. And you were talking about Black men and Black masculinity. Yeah. And speaking of mass panic. Yes. There has always been in this country mass panic around Black men and masculinity. And, you know, just even the developing narrative right now around President Obama Mm -hmm. and the first family as the exceptions to the Mm -hmm. otherwise you know, completely distorted narrative about black people. They're the exceptions, right? They're yes. the exceptional Negroes, so to speak. Yes. Right. And, you know, there's research recently about preschool teachers and black boys in school. You know, so this study was of teachers and it told them that they were to really kind of look at think about classroom management principles. So it didn't tell them what the what the actual research was, was to which was to measure their implicit bias. Mm-hmm. So they were instructed to kind of look for things in the children in the classroom, one white girl, one white boy, Mm -hmm. one black girl, one black boy. And they were instructed to look at the classroom generally and identify those potential areas of misbehavior or correction. And overwhelmingly, nearly all of the teachers studied focused on that black boy first. Hmm. And none of the kids misbehaved at all. But then coming out, they talked about that black boy mm. as the problem in the classroom. You know, so all of this is about narrative and perspective yeah. and mass panic around black masculinity. Yeah. And how, how is that manifesting right now?
1: You know, what's been sort of stable about it is that, you know, these stereotypes that lead to implicit bias yeah. have been portrayed in the media. They've been, con- these are messages that are very stable uh, stereotypes they work; mm-hmm. they're very effective mm-hmm. communication tools. As we said in our book, it's a shortcut to character development. Mm-hmm. You don't have to develop Tyrone as a character because just say the name and you're laughing. Mm-hmm. So that means you're already you've already made a decision about who that person is and the quality of that person and you know what types of person you're going to be dealing with. And so these are some of the issues that I mean they've just been in the media for a long time. And I mean, and it, it's sort of like means of control. So you know, you open the show talking about issues around slavery. I mean, Mm -hmm. some of these narratives really Mm -hmm. originate there and are really used to sort of perpetuate the system of slavery Mm -hmm. because you have without slavery. And this is what I've been doing some research on my next book that's coming out. And, you know, you hear in the abolition movement, you hear people who were against abolition saying, well, if we let these men out, they're just going to sit around having sex (laughs) With their women and our women too. Yeah. They're lazy, you know, they don't want to work. And the only way that they can really be part of society is to be under our tight control. Yeah. And so these were narratives that were really, since those times, and they were really narratives that sort of, Made to say, well, we are a civilizing influence, yeah. and even the the institution of slavery was a way to civilize these people. And yeah. wow, they are so mm-hmm. much better off than they were back in Africa. We did them so many favors yeah. by bringing us under our civilized control, and you know, giving them Christianity and all these things. And you know, these are all narratives that have been used to control, control the society, control black people yeah. as a whole. And it's so heartbreaking to see that it continues in the classroom. You know, mm-hmm. in the preschool classroom. Yeah. Like, can they get a fresh start? They're three. Can they be three? <laughs> can they be three? Do they have to carry the whole weight of the world and all this baggage that we have in this country that has never really been dealt with? Yeah. So yeah. that's what I'm calling a gift. The recent events is that my favorite quote is from Cornell West. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was a tweet mm-hmm. a while ago. He was like, we shouldn't deodorize the conversation about race yeah we need to let the funk rise to the surface let it stink,
0: <laughs> let, it stink.
1: <laughs> let it stink let it stink. smell it smell
0: up the deal place. with it
1: because we've just been deodorizing it really and i think obama he really i mean not intentionally or maybe he was intentionally i think he was sort of like a bomb soothing yeah. everyone yeah and um you know made us a lot of us feel like we had
0: started to turn a corner on a lot of these issues yeah You talk about civilization. So, you know, I've been doing this research about Native American boarding schools. Mm -hmm. And the kind of trajectory to that point Mm -hmm. was, okay, we really did them wrong. And now Mm -hmm. the favor that we can do for them is to civilize Mm -hmm. them. You know, we can give them civilization Mm -hmm. (laughs) as our apology and our gift for having done them so wrong. Yeah. Because they're uncivilized.
1: That's right. And it's the same sort of thing. You yeah. know, we're going to bring them under our control. And man, they were so,
0: they're so much better off now that we came and they took were over their land. They
1: were savages. As we took over their <laughs> land.
0: Yes. Yeah. And now we've given them this gift. It's a parallel story, mm-hmm. but it's the same, st- you know, it's the, it's the same mentality. So one of the things that, you know, you and I have talked about is the legacy of slavery. Mm-hmm. We had a conversation this weekend that really has made me kind of think about the perspective of whiteness mm-hmm. in that story and the history of whiteness in this country. And so the kind of dual story of the poor and low-income working class whites and blacks and that very close connection that we've had along the way, mm-hmm. or low-income whites as overseers on the plantation and really very you know, closely associated with the enslaved Africans. And being given that power after having been indentured servants right there alongside the enslaved folks. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing now, so that we have, we've seen the closing of factories. Mm -hmm. We've seen the closing of coal mines Mm -hmm. and other things where, you know, you have black and white working side by side. And now you have whites in positions of power in prisons and part of the mass incarceration structure. What is that story that's really kind of the that shared story. And what you just said
1: is just, it's so frightening when you think about how prison stocks really went soaring and everyone was pretty well in the private prison industry. They're very excited about it. And even after the election, after the election and even Mm -hmm. doubling down about his immigration policy, that's what Trump, he said he wants to deport them or jail them right? Mm. So if you deport them, you can't make money off That's of right. them. But if you here. jail them, then you can really make some money off of them. But then this is anecdotal. Yeah. But I know like in places like West Virginia, where I, I do some work, and I do spend some time, I've talked to young people, they have worked in the coal mines. Mm-hmm. And but the new thing for them is working in prisons. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you really think about what bones the incoming administration has to throw To all of these folks Mm -hmm. who uh, working class white people who overwhelmingly supported him, or Mm -hmm. well, actually, there's, I think they supported Hillary actually mostly. But the narrative anyway is that he was the one who's going to make things right for the white man, and one of the ways that you know fairly direct ways to do that is to give, and he's going to make more jobs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so one of the very, I mean, that's just a, a all in one swoop. You open some more prisons. They get some more jobs, yep. they're feeling good. Mm-hmm. You know, he's reelected.
0: Yeah. So it's And so- how many more bodies have to go into those prisons and-, and what do they look like?
1: And it's so funny because I you know, I was talking to somebody else about this. I was, you know, assuming that there was gonna be some sort of progressive progression in mm-hmm. this most recent mm-hmm. election, which turned out to be a wrong assumption. You know, one of the things that Obama did was he said that he announced they would stop using private prisons. And so me very fancifully, oh, well, maybe they'll, be, they'll end private schools, too, because, you know, that's another boondoggle, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: another money-making opportunity for people. And, you know, all of that seems so distant, mm-hmm. you know. And one of the things that I have to try to fight within myself to do is to stop dreaming big and mm-hmm. to stop thinking about bold things that we could do, especially when you're thinking, when you look at evidence, like you're talking about in this, like, this is evidence. This is science. Mm -hmm. These are things that we know. This bias is real. Mm -hmm. We do not invent it in our heads. That's right. And so now that we have, like, I feel like we've come such a long way in what we know, Mm -hmm. and what we know works and what it doesn't work. Yeah. And if you can have an appeal to reason and evidence, then you can have hope for like change. And it's hard to believe in reason when you look at the way the campaign that has been run this year. Yeah. So but the challenge I think is to like just hold on to it. We're talking about four years. Mm-hmm. We should not dim our lights or mm-hmm. lower our expectation and yeah. lower our demands for the system to be fairer.
0: Yeah. I think we can dream big in other ways. Mm-hmm. And the federal government is one piece of a very, very large pie of activity. Yes. And the Interactivity Foundation has been really supporting dialogue, conversation. And you know, Eric Holder, I, I remember being at DOJ when Eric Holder said, "We are a nation of cowards because we don't talk about mm-hmm. race." What is the role of dialogue right now, and how do we dream big around? conversation and building understanding across communities.
1: Well, I think part of dreaming big is to to not be afraid. you know I think that even at just a couple weeks in mm-hmm. people are already censoring themselves mm-hmm. and, and sort of adjusting what their their language is and so that's part of it is really sort of doubling down mm-hmm. on conversation and dialogue and cross red state, blue state dialogue, mm-hmm. it's easy to get very cynical yeah. about it. And, you know, sort of people were already very derisively talking about, you know, Obama's kumbaya, mm-hmm.
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> kumbaya Yeah,
1: <laughs> And, um, you know, I think that we have to sort of double down on that and sort of believe that change is possible, that they were, we are able to meet as human beings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think where the Interactivity Foundation has been important is that, it doesn't just happen on its own.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you have to create the space. Yes, you have to support people and make it an environment where they can do it. Yeah, this is not something that somebody who is working minimum wage and has children and you know and and all of the and it really doesn't matter what socioeconomic level you're at. Like people don't have time to just sit around and dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> So we have to support that, you know, and and really find ways of doing that. And so, and that's what IF has been doing in in the years that I've been affiliated with them. So I'm
0: I'm grateful for that privilege. Mm -hmm. Honestly, when I think about conversations on race, and this is something that I've been talking about in philanthropy, I think philanthropy needs to support much the way Interactivity Foundation does, needs to support conversation. I have real fear, honestly, when I think about Strangers coming together across racial lines Mm -hmm. to have discussion. It scares me. Hmm. What are the possibilities and how do we do it in a way that's constructive?
1: Well, I think that there has to be institutional level commitment. So we have to look to our community institutions, churches, Schools. schools. Yeah the gym, mm-hmm. <laughs> football games. I yeah. mean, you mentioned that, you know, the federal government is just a small piece. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, those of us who are very excited about Obama administration, mm-hmm. we sort of forgot about the private sector. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's one of the big differences. In my next book, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, a country that, Has no private sector. Mm -hmm. The government controls 80% of the economy. I mean, your only hope of anything is Mm -hmm. through the government. Mm -hmm. And in the United States, we don't have that issue. So while the Justice Department might be run by somebody who has shown to be hostile to issues of diversity and and all of those things, many people in the private sector disagree. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we're going to be looking for them to double down on diversity inclusion mm-hmm. i mean it's really time for them to step up to the plate and be leaders in this space mm-hmm. you know we've made some progress you know in this area of dealing with all of these historic divisions and beefs and resentments and you know we they, they're gonna have to step up so your latest project a mouth is always muzzled what's it about It's about the role of the arts in society during times of ethnic and economic strife. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's sort of set around the Guyana diaspora. So Guyana is a a Caribbean country in South America, English speaking, part of the British uh, West Indies. And it sort of is a look at the role of the arts and society around the backdrop of the 2015 election, which mm-hmm. was very, very crazy and contentious. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of looking at two artists. One is a Black male poet who's a millennial, and then the other is a Indo-Guyanese painter mm-hmm. who's in her late 60s. And so the story is told through their different perspectives on what the role of the art, what it should be, what it shouldn't be in a time of real... Strife, drama, racial tension, Mm -hmm. economic deprivation. Mm -hmm. And as I was reporting that, it felt like fiction, how Mm -hmm. crazy it was. (laughs) And and it really was, you know, I think our election ended up sort of, it wasn't quite the same. Like in in Guyana, there was people were actually killed who were speaking out during the time that I was sort of covering this issue.
0: Speaking out against the way the the election was going. Speaking
1: out against corruption. Uh Uh-huh. You had the air attorney general had threatened one of the leading publishers and he was recorded and he admitted (laughs) to saying that basically threatening the publisher and saying that if they don't stop criticizing him, he would die. And then there was somebody who was sort of stood up for the publisher and um, that person was killed. Like you talk about chilling right? and talk about a difficult climate to be. An artist and be to be somebody who speaks out, yeah. it's pretty difficult. But one of the things that I, in the book, you know, going back to the idea of slavery is... You know, a lot of those tensions really, like in the U.S., Mm -hmm. a lot of those tensions stem from slavery and economic exploitation. And Mm -hmm. it's the whole reason why that country exists Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that all these people moved into that space were shipped from Africa and then later India to Mm -hmm. work as um, mostly working on sugar plantations. And one of the difference between the British... So this was British Guyana originally. One of the big difference between the way... The UK ended slavery in the way the US ended slavery, it's really sort of instructive. Mm-hmm. And then to sort of have like these two, you know, I call them twin catastrophes yeah. of Brexit, and then Trump be elected. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, unresolved issues around the way that slavery ended. So in the UK, they actually had a pot of 20 million pounds
0: that they used to pay off slave owners you know whereas in the US when the slavery ended slavery, slave owners got some portion of 20 million pounds yes 20 million pounds for their loss for their loss for their trouble and then
1: the slaves actually had to work an additional 4 to 6 years because it was determined that the actual value that they've lost was 45 million and so they got this cash payout and then they got the use of the slaves for another six years so it was a sweet, sweet so they deal. got they
0: got paid and then they got additional free labor Yes, after slavery, yes, <laughs> for four years, right. yes,
1: right. The UK was eight hundred million pounds in debt at that time, mm-hmm. and so it turned out to actually be a fantastic stimulus to their economy. People have got to diversify. Slavery as an ins- economic institution was really had outlived its usefulness. It was time to move into the industrial economy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this little payout was really quite useful as far as helping Great Britain make that transition. Yeah. And so they were able to make it much earlier than the United States was. You know, so U.S., things don't end till the Civil War starts 1860. Right. In the U.S., it ends by the gun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so there was no such stimulus. And I think the important part of, about the stimulus is that it sort of acknowledges and the payout is that it acknowledges how much slavery helped to build up their country mm. and how it had sort of seeped into all of their institutions. So the whole process of them paying out this money mm-hmm. and then all these people came out the closet who owned slaves because mm-hmm. everybody wanted to get a piece of that money. Right. And it really became a sort of reckoning. You know, you saw how much the banking industry was Embedded. Embedded. Yeah, The clergy. In the system of slavery. Completely embedded in the system. Like pretty much every institution in uh, British
0: society Mm -hmm. was involved. As here. And then there wasn't that stimulus or reparations.
1: And there was not that here. And so basically you just had a lot of angry people. Yeah. They lost their wealth. And that white anger never went away. It never went away. And, you know, the thing about the UK is that there's still white anger, but... I think the stimulus or the reparations that they got helped them sort of forget how they got to live how they live and how mm-hmm. they got their privileged place in the world. Mm-hmm. And so when all these brown people that they had conquered and pillaged, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they A, come on their store, on their shores, they show up on their shores, they're like, oh, whoa, what are you doing here? I was like, oh, well, it's sort of, you know, it's there's an amnesia yeah. <laughs> around around why people that, that might. That money allows for. It does allow for that, you know, and it also allows for like the UK. I mean, they're not I wouldn't say that it's maybe similar to Canada. It's it's not not to say it's a utopia, but you just don't see the same vitriol, vitriol, anger, the hatred that you'll find in parts of the United States. So,
0: you know, I think in Great Britain, it's in pockets where, you know, and folks have assumed that it's been in pockets. Mm -hmm in the United That's States, right? right? That yeah. it's in the sa- it's in the deep south, mm-hmm. maybe some in Appalachia, like that mm-hmm. anger, that kind of old generational anger and mm-hmm. hatred is just kind of in those pockets. But actually, it's not just in those pockets. And mm-hmm. that white anger never had an outlet or it did, actually in post-reconstruction mm-hmm. violence and uh, Jim Crow. Yes, but not a, a a kind of institutional reckoning with what the loss to white community had been of the institution of slavery. Yeah.
1: You know, the thing about looking at those records in the UK and the, the, the archives, which they, it's, it's fantastic. They have, you can go online and just mm-hmm. type your name in and see who owned you if you're from uh, the Caribbean, you know, to look online and to kind of look at all the discussion around it. It really was a reckoning, mm-hmm. you know, where people were able to sort of count you know, you, it was a reckoning, it was all aired. And I, I feel like in the U S there was, you never had that opportunity. So now where things are coming out. Oh, at Georgetown, they yeah. sold some slaves to keep Jesuit priests, yeah. stole slaves so that they could keep the university afloat. Yeah. This is a shock to many of us here, maybe not to certain historians, but it's a shock to us. And that's partly what this is after the war, it was sort of, everything was sort of shrouded. Mm -hmm. Nothing was really dealt with Mm -hmm. and it was hidden. And then that really sort of has allowed a certain level of amnesia. Mm -hmm. There was not this reckoning that really needed to happen. And it wasn't just the loss of wealth. It's a loss of privilege. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I feel like even in these places like Indiana where we both Mm -hmm. live (laughs) and in the West and these, you know, Utah and all these other States, Mm -hmm. like that's, this idea of white privilege and white supremacy that they felt like was lost mm-hmm. and probably Obama triggered them a mm-hmm. lot. Maybe he triggered them in ways that they didn't, they didn't even, even realize.
0: realize it until they're like, oh, look at me,
1: look at my hand. Yeah, i voting for even Donald help Trump. I can't even help myself. <laughs> voting for Donald Trump.
0: <laughs> so the conversation about reparations for the descendants of enslaved peoples mm-hmm. in this country, mm-hmm. has hit a brick wall here. And I'm wondering if that brick wall is actually the notion of a stimulus. Because you know you have the abrupt end to this institution that has been feeding people, that has yeah. been generating wealth for literally for generations, and it's over. Yep. And then conversations about 40 acres and a mule and restitution to yes. the folks rightfully yes. to folks who've been stolen and abused <laughs> kidnapped, and maimed and murdered for hundreds of years on this soil, but then no conversation about what replaces that institution that's now gone. So is that the brick wall that do you think, or a brick in the wall around reparations?
1: It's one of them. I mean, I think that we had some very fanciful discussions around it. So Tanahasi Coates, mm-hmm. who's our our friend from Howard, he, you know, did a wonderful job in sort mm-hmm. of br- making this case for reparations in the Atlantic. And looking at not just the slavery era, he was looking at all the policies that replaced slavery and that helped to, could sort of conspire to target Black people and keep us Isolated mm-hmm. racially and economically um, mm-hmm. in this country, and that was sort of the farthest that we've sort of seen it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hillary Beckles, who I quote from quite a bit in my book, he has led the effort for Caribbean nations to mm-hmm. to receive to, 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 reparations. to receive reparations, and, and that process actually started back in 2013. Like mm-hmm. he he published his book Britain's Black Debt in 2013. He also gave an address to Parliament. Hmm. And he was interested in in, you know, furthering that dialogue. I mean, I think in the UK, because you have all these fantastic records, you know, it's very easy for me to trace my name hmm. and look and see what they owe. And in the United States, so much of that is buried. Yeah. And we don't know like on we it's like an accident that we know that these Georgetown Jesuit ministers mm-hmm. did this mm-hmm. there was never any sort of systematic way to sort of do that but in both cases there's a brick wall mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we spend our time talking about these aggrieved <laughs> white people yeah. and their feelings yes. and and their loss of privileges yes. Yes. and there's a huge privileging of their needs yeah. and real amnesia ignoring like we don't even ask the question Mm -hmm. of our needs. And and my, again, my fear is with this new administration that's coming in is that we hide and we, we don't continue those conversations. Mm -hmm. Like we have to, like, this is fact. Yes. This is history. These are evidence. Like this is, these are things that are true. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we have to sort of stick to them and not be afraid, mm-hmm. you know, to just stay on them and keep pushing, keep pushing the issue. You know, sometimes it takes going back into history, you know, mm-hmm. because as we talked about it, cause, you know, I'm thinking about this and the, the difference in, in the
0: Civil War. And like, man, those people are still mad about that. <laughs> still mad. Still mad. And, you know, my, my, one of my dear friends and mentors, Hector Sanchez Flores with the National Compoundries Network, he says, you know, we all have at least seven generations of memory in us we all have historical memory that long so folks may not know why they kind of knee (laughs) knee jerk pulled the lever Mm -hmm. in one way or another the way they did in the election but it is never disconnected from that generational memory that we all carry So when we talk about the schools today, and you've been heavily involved and been doing a lot of research about Mm -hmm. education in this country and the schools, when you think about the current structures, you know, traditional public schools, public charters, private schools, even, where do you see that kind of generational memory reflected? One of the projects that I did in my neighborhood in Washington, D.C.,
1: and I was, again, shocked, you know, first of all, that. It's Bloomingdale. My neighborhood was a plantation mm-hmm. and there were slaves working that plantation. Mm-hmm. It was a whole estate. They were growing things. Like, why did I only just know that now? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's, a, and you know, nobody at Howard seems to know that either. So I'm like, how do we know? So that's a lot of these things have been suppressed and nobody really wants to know. Mm-hmm. So that was one of the first things, but then, you know, moving toward a lot of our research, we looked at when desegregation happened in, in, uh, Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. 1952, the playgrounds are desegregated. Mm-hmm. 54 is Brown v. Board of Education. Mm-hmm. Within five years, 90% of the white people leave mm-hmm. Bloomingdale, this,
0: Bloomingdale, this this,
1: na- this specific neighborhood. Yeah, They leave. And so a lot of our narrative is about the riots and civil rights movement. That's what pushed... No, actually, it was much simpler what pushed white people out. Yeah. They simply did not want to share their public space mm-hmm. with black people. And so... They left in mass Mm -hmm. and now we're seeing we've in the last few years, we've been experiencing a return, which has also coincided with a real push towards privatizing the system. Mm -hmm. And so the system is mostly privatized. So they don't have to share their space. They do not have to share their space. And, you know, it's all cloaked in terms of choice and, you know, you have choices and everything. Well, no, actually, what happens under a privatized system is that the people running the schools have the choice. Mm -hmm. And so they get to decide who comes in or who comes out. So a reporter from The Post emailed me today because they're saying under the new administration that they're already talking about expanding the voucher program. But I was pretty shocked to hear that it's not just uh, continuing what's existing, which they give a certain number of low-income families in mm-hmm. D.C. get a voucher to go into the private school. They want to expand it to everyone. To expand the voucher program yes, to every everybody. resident of
0: D.C.? Yes. Meaning that anyone... Low income, low income, mid- middle income. Everybody has access to these vouchers. Yes. So
1: I'm sure they would have to means test it and everything. But so this is one of the ideas that has
0: sort of been floating. Which is- what is the just? What is the? So if the justification behind the voucher program, which, which is fraught, but if the justification <laughs> right. is that low income children don't have access to the same yes. quality education as yeah. kids who go to private school then what is the justification for saying that anybody can go to a private school with public money?
1: Well, I, I think we're in a post-justification Post-truth. stage. <laughs> Post-truth. <laughs> we're,
0: we're not, I don't know. So I didn't hear anything more <laughs>
1: from that. But okay. I mean, to me, it's sort of like we've been dancing around this thing and we've been bleeding out public education in the city in a slow death. Mm-hmm. A little bit by little, we close one school, we close a batch this year, we close a batch that year, we open up a new school, we sort of flooding the market with private options or privately run options. Mm-hmm. And so that's been sort of a slow process over the years to where we've got we've we've killed about half, you know, it's because we've got half of the kids, public school kids are, are in privately managed schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and then half of public school kids are in Charter. charters, charters. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of just like a gloves off. Like wh- like why are we even pretending like we yeah, like we want even, to do like let's just we just want to private we want to not just, even use low income right. as a proxy. We anymore. just think private is better. Public doesn't Period. work, right? Public doesn't work. You know, meanwhile, we've been in this experiment for 20 years. They spent hundreds of millions of dollars, and the score most recent scores that came out showed DC, and I'm, I'm laughing to keep from crying because it's not even funny, 25% of D.C. public and charter schools are college-ready. One in four. So how has this investment worked for us already? 20 years. And why would we want to double down on that investment?
0: That's not smart investment. And in fact, expand our investment by opening it to everyone.
1: Yeah, if you open up to everyone, like you're really just saying, you know, as I told the reporter, you're just throwing the white flag up. And you're saying, you know what? Racial economic segregation, we don't care. Because the whole thing about private management is that the people running the schools have the choice, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, if you're in the seventies and you're a black person, you're trying to get access to a Trump hotel. Mm-hmm. It is up to him whether he lets you in or not. Yeah. Even if you're the government paying for that voucher, there's nothing you can tell them. If they only want to let one Black or no Black people into their school, that is their choice because they are privately run. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the idea of of unleashing all of D.C. school children to the forces, these private market forces, they're hostile to poor people of color right now. Yes.
0: And the notion of desegregation, integration closing achievement gaps and opportunity no, no, gaps all of that, that. It, right. all of that has been public and the initiatives behind those mm-hmm. things have been public
1: and they've all been public and then they also to go back to that 1954 situation they're all trying to ameliorate the choices of white people mm-hmm. white people make a choice in mass that they don't want to be a part of the system mm-hmm. and so all of these remedies that come about to say hey This is one system. Let's all, you know, so so they decide they don't want to be a system. They either move to all-white communities or they put their children in private schools. Mm -hmm. They get into very exclusive communities, Mm -hmm. and in any case, they're excluding people, excluding Mm -hmm. people of color, people of limited means, Mm -hmm. and some of us are positioned to be able to. Navigate these things. Mm-hmm. There's always going to be a few, and yeah. actually, we're we're sitting in a room yes. there, there too. We'll be able to navigate it, mm-hmm. but we are still at the mercy and whim of these forces. Mm-hmm. Either one of our children could be kicked out, and we we have no recourse really. Yeah. There's nothing that we can do, and that's something yeah. that as you know, as you know in your work, mm-hmm. that happens quite a bit. Yeah. We know that there's bias, and these I'm sure this study was public school kids in oh, New yeah. Orleans. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. so we know their bias even in the public system, mm-hmm. the private system, which has no expectation of accountability mm. there or
0: structures to even
1: measure to that, measure. Yeah. They can grade unfairly. Yeah. They can admit people in a whim, deciding who they want in, who they don't want. in. they can kick out people yeah. deciding who they want and who they don't. And so you're once again putting us at the mercy of the whims of white people mm-hmm. and white institutions and no public accountability for that. So mm-hmm. it's very depressing. So, I'm, you, know, you know, again, I'm just going to try to do what I've always done, mm-hmm. which is to just call it as I'm seeing it. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. we we shall see whether this thing gets any further. It seems like when we scream and yell, they like that even more, but yeah, I have no other. That's, that's all we got to do for for the public record. They, I mean, people have to know that this is what you're doing. Yeah. This is what the impact has already been. Mm -hmm. This is what history has already shown us. Mm -hmm. And this is how you're, this is the decision that you're making despite that. And beyond that, You know, we just have to figure out how to help our children, our communities uh, sort of survive whatever is coming.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will say, you know, just to end on a note of hope (laughs) that I have really been fueled lately by our grantees, the organizations that we support who you know, at the ground level are turning inward and they're turning to the local work that has to happen on the ground. On that fateful Tuesday, you know, we saw in Massachusetts and Georgia initiatives that were defeated that were really intended to expand charter schools because, you know, I think our groups really helped to build a narrative about privatization Mm -hmm. and what that really means for communities and didn't at all have the resources to match the money that was going into really kind of supporting these initiatives that did not pass. So That's that's happening at the local level. And I think that there's a lot of conversation now about how locally the groups can be focused so that they can be ready for, you know, four years from now to really retake the reins and to bring the federal government back in as a partner. So I think there's, there's hope as India Ari says. I'm
1: glad to hear that. I did not hear about that. So I want to know that story. Yeah. That is inspiring. Mm -hmm. So the work that, You all do here at the Communities for Just Schools. It's more important than ever. Mm -hmm. I hope you double down. Mm -hmm. I hope all of your grantees double down. And I hope that the fund continues to grow because civil society is the only hope, actually, right now. So I think it's kind of great you're not in the government anymore. I know. (laughs) I mean, a number of reasons, but... I mean, civil society is much bigger Mm -hmm. and it can be as powerful Mm -hmm. as uh, the federal government and who's running it. And so it's going to be really important for philanthropy to stand up, to get up and get in there. Mm
0: -hmm. Natalie, I could talk, you know, I could talk to you all day, (laughs) but thank you. Thank you for having
1: me so much.
0: This was fun. Where can folks find you if they want to reach out to you online? I am on Twitter. (laughs) mostly i'm also
1: um you know i'm at howard university's website
0: thank you natalie for joining us on schoolhouse and thanks to all of you for listening remember that you can follow me on twitter at allison r brown and sign up for the communities for just schools fund newsletter at cjsfund.org have a wonderful week